Chapter Twenty Four of the Rise of Silas Lapham by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyette. That evening, James Bellingham came to see Corey after dinner, and went to find him in his own room. "'I've come at the instance of Colonel Lapham,' said the uncle. "'He was at my office today, and I had a long talk with him. "'Did you know that he was in difficulties?' "'I fancied that he was in some sort of trouble. "'And I had the bookkeeper's conjectures. "'He doesn't really know much about it. "'Well, he thinks it's time, on all accounts, "'that you should know how he stands, "'and why he declined that proposition of yours.' I must say he has behaved very well, like a gentleman. I'm not surprised. I am. It's hard to behave like a gentleman where your interest is vitally concerned. And Lapham doesn't strike me as a man who's in the habit of acting from the best in him always. Do any of us? asked Corey. Not all of us, at any rate, said Bellingham. It must have cost him something to say no to you for he's just in that state when he believes that this or that chance, however small, would save him. Corey was silent. Is he really in such a bad way? It's hard to tell just where he stands. I suspect that a hopeful temperament and fondness for round numbers have always caused him to set his figures beyond his actual worth. I don't say that he's been dishonest about it, but he's had a loose way of estimating his assets. He's reckoned his wealth on the basis of his capital, and some of his capital is borrowed. He's lost heavily by some of the recent failures, and there's been a terrible shrinkage in his values. I don't mean merely in the stock of paint on hand, but in a kind of competition which has become very threatening. You know about that West Virginian paint. Corey nodded. Well, he tells me that they've struck a vein of natural gas out there which will enable them to make as good a paint as his own, at a cost of manufacturing so low that they can undersell him everywhere. If this proves to be the case, it will not only drive his paint out of the market, but will reduce the value of his works, the whole plant at Lapham, to a merely nominal figure. I see, said Corey dejectedly. I've understood that he had put a great deal of money into his works. Yes, and he estimated his mind there at a high figure. Of course, it will be worth little or nothing if the West Virginia paint drives his out. Then, besides, Lapham has been into several things outside of his own business, and, like a good many other men who try outside things, he's kept account of them himself, and he's all mixed up about them. He's asked me to look into his affairs with him, and I've promised to do so. Whether he can be tided over his difficulties remains to be seen. I'm afraid it will take a good deal of money to do it, a great deal more than he thinks, at least. He believes comparatively little would do it. I think differently. I think that anything less than a great deal would be thrown away on him. If it were merely a question of a certain sum, even a large sum, to keep him going, it might be managed, but it's much more complicated. And, as I say, it must have been a trial to him to refuse your offer. This did not seem to be the way in which Bellingham had meant to conclude. But he said no more, and Corey made him no response. He remained pondering the case, now hopefully, now doubtfully and wondering, whatever his mood was, 
whether Penelope knew anything of the fact with which her mother went nearly at the same moment to acquaint her. "'Of course, he's done it on your account,' Mrs. Lapham could not help saying. "'Then he was very silly. Does he think I would let him give father money? And if father lost it for him, does he suppose it would make it any easier for me? I think father acted twice as well. It was very silly.' In repeating the censure, her look was not so severe as her tone. She even smiled a little, and her mother reported to her father that she acted more like herself than she had yet since Corey's offer. "'I think if he was to repeat his offer, she would have him now,' said Mrs. Lapham. "'Well, I'll let her know if he does,' said the Colonel. "'I guess he won't do it to you,' she cried. "'Who else will he do it to?' he demanded. They perceived that they had each been talking of a different offer." After Lapham went to his business in the morning, the postman brought another letter from Irene, which was full of pleasant things that were happening to her. There was a great deal about her cousin Will, as she called him. At the end she had written, "'Tell Pen I don't want she should be foolish.' "'There,' said Mrs. Lapham, "'I guess it's going to come out right all round.' And it seemed as if even the Colonel's difficulties were past. "'When your father gets through this pen,' she asked impulsively, "'what shall you do?' "'What have you been telling Irene about me?' "'Nothing much. What should you do?' "'It would be a good deal easier to say what I should do if father didn't,' said the girl. "'I know you think it was nice in him to make your father that offer,' urged the mother. "'It was nice, yes, but it was silly,' said the girl. "'Most nice things are silly, I suppose,' she added." She went to her room and wrote a letter. It was very long and very carefully written, and when she read it over she tore it into small pieces. She wrote another one, short and hurried, and tore that up too. Then she went back to her mother in the family room and asked to see Irene's letter, and read it over to herself. "'Yes, she seems to be having a good time,' she sighed. "'Mother, do you think I ought to let Mr. Corey know that I know about it?' "'Well, I should think that it would be a pleasure to him,' said Mrs. Lapham, judicially. "'I'm not so sure of that the way I should have to tell him. I should begin by giving him a scolding. Of course he meant well by it. But can't you see that it wasn't very flattering? How did he expect it would change me?' "'I don't believe he ever thought of that.' "'Don't you? Why?' "'Because you can see that he isn't one of that kind. He might want to please you without wanting to change you by what he did.' "'Yes, he must have known that nothing would change me, at least nothing that he could do. I thought of that. I shouldn't like him to feel that I couldn't appreciate it, even if I did think it was silly. Should you write to him?' "'I don't see why not. It would be too pointed.' No, I shall just let it go. I wish he hadn't done it. Well, he has done it. And I've tried to write him about it, two letters, one so humble and grateful that it couldn't stand up on its edge, and the other so pert and flippant. Mother, I wish you could have seen those two letters. I wish I had kept them to look at, if I ever got to thinking I had any sense again. They would take the conceit out of me." What's the reason he don't come here any more? Doesn't he come? 
asked Penelope in turn, as if it were something she had not noticed particularly. You'd ought to know. Yes, she sat silent a while. If he doesn't come, I suppose it's because he's offended at something I did. What did you do? Nothing. I wrote to him a little while ago. I suppose it was very blunt, but I didn't believe he would be angry at it. But this, this that he's done shows he was angry, and that he wasn't just seizing the first chance to get out of it. What have you done, Pen? demanded her mother sharply. Oh, I don't know. All the mischief in the world, I suppose. I'll tell you. When you first told me that father was in trouble with his business, I wrote to him not to come any more till I let him. I said I couldn't tell him why, and he hasn't been here since. I'm sure I don't know what it means. Her mother looked at her with angry severity. Well, Penelope Lapham, for a sensible child, you are the greatest goose I ever saw. Did you think he would come here and see you if you wouldn't let him come? He might have written, urged the girl. Her mother made that despairing with her tongue and fell back in her chair. I should have despised him if he had written. He's acted just exactly right. And you, you've acted. I don't know how you've acted. I'm ashamed of you. A girl that could be so sensible for her sister and always say and do just the right thing. And then when it comes to herself to be such a disgusting simpleton. I thought I ought to break with him at once and not let him suppose that there was any hope for him or me if father was poor. It was my one chance in this whole business to do anything heroic and I jumped at it. You mustn't think because I can laugh at it now that I wasn't in earnest, mother. I was dead. But the colonel has gone to ruin so gradually that he's spoilt everything. I expected that he would be bankrupt the next day. And that then he would understand what I meant. But to have it drag along for a fortnight seems to take all the heroism out of it and leave it as flat. She looked at her mother with a smile that shone through her tears and a pathos that quivered around her jesting lips. It's easy enough to be sensible for other people, but when it comes to myself, there I am. Especially when I want to do what I oughtn't so much. That it seems as if doing what I didn't want to do must be doing what I ought. But it's been a great success one way, mother. It's helped me to keep up before the colonel. If it hadn't been for Mr. Corey's staying away, and my feeling so indignant with him for having been badly treated by me, I shouldn't have been worth anything at all. The tears started down her cheeks, but her mother said, well, now, go along and write to him. It doesn't matter what you say much, and don't be so very particular. Her third attempt at a letter pleased her scarcely better than the rest, but she sent it, though it seemed so blunt and awkward. She wrote, Dear friend, I expected when I sent you that note that you would understand almost the next day why I could not see you any more. You must know now, and you must not think that if anything happened to my father, I should wish you to help him. But that is no reason why I should not thank you, and I do thank you for offering. It was like you, I will say that. Yours sincerely, Penelope Lapham. 
She posted her letter, and he sent his reply in the evening by hand. Dearest, what I did was nothing till you praised it. Everything I have and am is yours. Won't you send a line by the bearer to say that I may come to see you? I know how you feel, but I am sure that I can make you think differently. You must consider that I loved you without a thought of your father's circumstances, and always shall. T.C. The generous words were blurred to her eyes by the tears that sprang into them, but she could only write an answer. Please do not come. I have made up my mind. As long as this trouble is hanging over us, I cannot see you, and if father is unfortunate, all is over between us. She brought his letter to her mother, and told her what she had written in reply. Her mother was thoughtful for a while before she said, with a sigh, "'Well, I hope you've begun as you can carry out, Pen.' "'Oh, I shall not have to carry out at all. I shall not have to do anything. That's one comfort, the only comfort.' She went away to her room, and when Mrs. Lapham told her husband of the affair, he was silent at first, as she had been. Then he said, "'I don't know as I should have wanted her to done differently. I don't know as she could. If I ever come out right again, she won't have anything to feel meeching about. And if I don't, I don't want she should be beholden to anybody. And I guess that's the way she feels.' The Corys, in their turn, sat in judgment on the fact which their son felt bound to bring to their knowledge. She has behaved very well, said Mrs. Corey, to whom her son had spoken. My dear, said her husband with his laugh, she has behaved too well. If she had studied the whole situation with the most artful eye to its mastery, she could not possibly have behaved better. The process of Lapham's financial disintegration was like the course of some chronic disorder, which has fastened itself upon the Constitution but advances with continual reliefs, with apparent amelioration, and at times seems not to advance at all, when it gives hope of final recovery not only to the sufferer, but to the eye of science itself. There were moments when James Bellingham, seeing Lapham pass this crisis and that, began to fancy that he might pull through altogether, and at these moments when his adviser could not oppose anything but experience and probability to the evidence of the fact, Lapham was buoyant with courage, and imparted his hopefulness to his household. Our theory of disaster, of sorrow, of affliction, borrowed from the poets and novelists, is that it is incessant. But every passage in our own lives and in the lives of others, so far as we have witnessed them, teaches us that this is false. The house of mourning is decorously darkened to the world, but within itself it is also the house of laughing. Bursts of gaiety, as heartfelt as its grief, relieve the gloom, and the stricken survivors have their jests together, in which the thought of the dead is tenderly involved, and a fond sense, not crazier than many others, of sympathy and enjoyment beyond the silence, justifies the sunnier mood before sorrow rushes back, deploring and despairing, and making it all up again with the conventional fitness of things. Lapham's adversity had this quality in common with bereavement. 
It was not always like the adversity we figure in allegory. It had its moments of being like prosperity, and if upon the whole it was continual, it was not incessant. Sometimes there was a week of repeated reverses, when he had to keep his teeth set and to hold on hard to all his hopefulness, and then days came of negative result or slight success, when he was full of his jokes at the tea-table and wanted to go to the theatre or do something to cheer Penelope up. In some miraculous way, by some enormous stroke of success which should eclipse the brightest of his past prosperity, he expected to do what would reconcile all difficulties, not only in his own affairs but in hers too. "'You'll see,' he said to his wife. "'It's going to come out all right. Irene'll fix it up with Bill's boy, and then she'll be off Penn's mind, and, if things go on as they've been going for the last two days, I'm going to be in a position to do the favors myself, and Penn can feel that she's making a sacrifice, and then I guess maybe she'll do it. If things turn out as I expect now, and times ever do get better generally, I can show Corey that I appreciate his offer. I can offer him the partnership myself then. Even in the other moods which came when everything had been going wrong, and there seemed no way out of the net, there were points of consolation to Lapham and his wife. They rejoiced that Irene was safe beyond the range of their anxieties, and they had a proud satisfaction that there had been no engagement between Corey and Penelope, and that it was she who had forbidden it. In the closeness of interest and sympathy in which their troubles had reunited them, they confessed to each other that nothing would have been more galling to their pride than the idea that Lapham should not have been able to do everything for his daughter that the Corys might have expected. Whatever happened now, the Corys could not have it to say that the Laphams had tried to bring any such thing about. Bellingham had lately suggested an assignment to Lapham as the best way out of his difficulties. It was evident that he had not the money to meet his liabilities at present, and that he could not raise it without ruinous sacrifices, that might still end in ruin after all. If he made the assignment, Bellingham argued, he could gain time and make terms. The state of things generally would probably improve, since it could not be worse, and the market, which he had glutted with his paint, might recover and he could start again. Lapham had not agreed with him. When his reverses first began, it had seemed easy for him to give up everything, to let the people he owed take all, so only they would let him go out with clean hands, and he had dramatized this feeling in his talk with his wife when they spoke together of the mills on the G.L.M.P. But ever since then it had been growing harder, and he could not consent even to seem to do it now in the proposed assignment. He had not found other men so very liberal or faithful with him. A good many of them appeared to have combined to hunt him down. A sense of enmity towards all his creditors asserted itself in him. He asked himself why they should not suffer a little too. Above all, he shrank from the publicity of the assignment. It was open confession that he had been a fool in some way. He could not bear to have his family, his brother the judge especially, to whom he had always appeared the soul of business wisdom, 
think him imprudent or stupid. He would make any sacrifice before it came to that. He determined in parting with Bellingham to make the sacrifice which he had oftenest in his mind, because it was the hardest, and to sell his new house. That would cause the least comment. Most people would simply think that he had got a splendid offer, and with his usual luck had made a very good thing of it. Others who knew a little more about him would say that he was hauling in his horns, but they could not blame him. A great many other men were doing the same in those hard times, the shrewdest and safest men. It might even have a good effect. He went straight from Bellingham's office to the real estate broker in whose hands he meant to put his house, for he was not the sort of man to shilly-shally when he had once made up his mind. But he found it hard to get his voice up out of his throat when, he said, he guessed he would get the broker to sell that new house of his on the waterside of Beacon. The broker answered cheerfully, yes. He supposed Colonel Lapham knew it was a pretty dull time in real estate. And Lapham said, yes, he knew that, but he should not sell at a sacrifice, and he did not care to have the broker name him or describe the house definitely, unless parties meant business. Again the broker said yes, and he added, as a joke Lapham would appreciate, that he had half a dozen houses on the waterside of Beacon, on the same terms, that nobody wanted to be named, or to have his property described. It did, in fact, comfort Lapham a little to find himself in the same boat with so many others. He smiled grimly, and said in his turn, Yes, he guessed that was about the size of it with a good many people. But he had not the heart to tell his wife what he had done, and he sat taciturn the whole evening, without even going over his accounts, and went early to bed, where he lay tossing half the night before he fell asleep. He slept at last only upon the promise he made himself that he would withdraw the house from the broker's hands, but he went heavily to his own business in the morning without doing so. There was no such rush anyhow, he reflected bitterly. There would be time to do that a month later, probably. It struck him with a sort of dismay when a boy came with a note from a broker, saying that a party who had been over the house in the fall had come to him to know whether it could be bought, and was willing to pay the cost of the house up to the time he had seen it. Lapham took refuge in trying to think who the party could be. He concluded that it must have been somebody who had gone over it with the architect, and he did not like that, but he was aware that this was not an answer to the broker, and he wrote that he would give him an answer in the morning. Now that it had come to the point, it did not seem to him that he could part with the house. So much of his hope for himself and his children had gone into it that the thought of selling it made him tremulous and sick. He could not keep about his work steadily, and with his nerves shaken by want of sleep, and the shock of this sudden and unexpected question, he left his office early, and went over to look at the house and try to bring himself to some conclusion here. The long procession of lamps on the beautiful street was flaring in the clear red of the sunset towards which it marched, and Lapham, with a lump in his throat, stopped in front of his house and looked at their multitude. They were not merely a part of the landscape, 
they were a part of his pride and glory his success his triumphant life's work which was fading into failure in his helpless hands he ground his teeth to keep down that lump but the moisture in his eyes blurred the lamps and the keen pale crimson against which it made them flicker he turned and looked up as he had so often done at the window spaces neatly glazed for the winter with white linen and recalled the night when he had stopped with irene before the house and she had said that she should never live there and he had tried to coax her into courage about it there was no such facade as that on the whole street to his thinking through his long talks with the architect he had come to feel almost as intimately and fondly as the architect himself the satisfying simplicity of the whole design and the delicacy of its detail it appealed to him as an exquisite bit of harmony appeals to the unlearned ear and he recognized the difference between this fine work and the obstreperous pretentiousness of the many overloaded house-fronts which seymour had made him notice for his instruction elsewhere on the back bay now in the depths of his gloom he tried to think what italian city it was where seymour said he had first got the notion of treating brickwork in that way he unlocked the temporary door with the key he always carried so that he could let himself in and out whenever he liked and entered the house dim and very cold with the accumulated frigidity of the whole winter in it and looking as if the arrest of work upon it had taken place a thousand years before it smelt of the unpainted woods and the clean hard surfaces of the plaster where the experiments in decoration had left it untouched and mingled with these odors was that of some rank pigments and metallic compositions which seymour had used in trying to realize a certain daring novelty of finish which had not proved successful above all lapham detected the peculiar odor of his own paint with which the architect had been greatly interested one day when lapham showed it to him at the office he had asked lapham to let him try the persis brand in realizing a little idea he had for the finish of mrs lapham's room if it succeeded they could tell her what it was for a surprise lapham glanced at the bay window in the reception room where he sat with his girls on the trestles when corey first came by and then he explored the whole house to the attic in the light faintly admitted through the linen sashes the floors were strewn with shavings and chips which the carpenters had left and in the music-room these had been blown into long irregular windrows by the draughts through a wide rent in the linen sash lapham tried to pin it up but failed and stood looking out of it over the water the ice had left the river and the low tide lay smooth and red in the light of the sunset the cambridge flats showed the sad sodden yellow of meadows stripped bare after a long sleep under snow the hills the naked trees the spires and roofs had a black outline as if they were objects in the landscape of the french school the whim seized lapham to test the chimney in the music-room it had been tried in the dining-room below 
and in his girls' fireplaces above, but here the hearth was still clean. He gathered some shavings and blocks together, and kindled them, as the flame mounted gaily from them, he pulled up a nail-keg which he found there, and sat down to watch it. Nothing could have been better. The chimney was a perfect success, and as Lapham glanced out of the torn linen sash, he said to himself that that party, whoever he was, who had offered to buy his house, might go to the devil. He would never sell it as long as he had a dollar. He said that he should pull through yet, and it suddenly came to his mind that, if he could raise the money to buy out those West Virginia fellows, he should be all right, and would have the whole game in his own hand. He slapped himself on the thigh, and wondered that he had never thought of that before and then, lighting a cigar with a splinter from the fire, he sat down again to work the scheme out in his own mind. He did not hear the feet heavily stamping up the stairs, and coming towards the room where he sat, and the policeman to whom the feet belonged had to call out to him, smoking at his chimney-corner, with his back turned to the door, "'Hello! What are you doing here?' "'What's that to you?' retorted Lapham, wheeling half round on his nail-keg. "'I'll show you,' said the officer, advancing upon him, and then stopping short as he recognized him. "'Why, Colonel Lapham, I thought it was some tramp gotten here.' "'Have a cigar?' said Lapham hospitably. "'Sorry there ain't another nail-keg.' The officer took the cigar. "'I'll smoke it outside. I've just come on, and I can't stop. Trying your chimney?' "'Yes, I thought I'd see how it would draw in here. It seems to go first-rate.' The policeman looked about him with an eye of inspection. "'You want to get that linen window there mended up?' "'Yes, I'll speak to the builder about that. It can go for one night.' The policeman went to the window and failed to pin the linen together where Lapham had failed before. "'I can't fix it.' He looked round once more and saying, "'Well, good night.' went out and down the stairs. Lapham remained by the fire till he had smoked his cigar. Then he rose and stamped upon the embers that still burned with his heavy boots, and went home. He was very cheerful at supper. He told his wife that he guessed he had a sure thing of it now, and in another twenty-four hours he should tell her just how. He made Penelope go to the theatre with him, and when they came out after the play, the night was so fine that he said they must walk round by the new house and take a look at it in the starlight. He said he had been there before he came home and tried Seymour's chimney in the music room, and it worked like a charm. As they drew near Beacon Street, they were aware of unwanted stir and tumult, and presently the still air transmitted a turmoil of sound through which a powerful and incessant throbbing made itself felt. The sky had reddened above them, and, turning the corner at the public garden, they saw a black mass of people obstructing the perspective of the brightly lighted street, and out of this mass a half-dozen engines, whose strong heartbeats had already reached them, sent up volumes of fire-tinged smoke and steam from their funnels. Ladders were planted against the façade of a building from the roof of which a mass of flame burnt smoothly upward, except where here and there it seemed to pull contemptuously away from the heavy streams of water 
which the firemen, clinging like great beetles to their ladders, poured in upon it. Lapham had no need to walk down through the crowd, gazing and gossiping, with shouts and cries and hysterical laughter before the burning house to make sure that it was his. "'I guess I done it, Pen," was all he said. Among the people who were looking at it were a party who seemed to have run out from a dinner from a neighboring house. The ladies were fantastically wrapped up as if they had flung on the first things they could seize. "'Isn't it perfectly magnificent?' cried a pretty girl. "'I wouldn't have missed it on any account. Thank you so much, Mr. Symington, for bringing us out.' "'I thought you'd like it,' said this Mr. Symington, who must have been the host. "'And you can enjoy it without the least compunction, Miss Delano, for I happen to know that the house belongs to a man who could afford to burn up one for you once a year.' "'Oh, do you think he would if I came again?' "'I haven't the least doubt of it. We don't do things by halves in Boston.' "'He ought to have had a coat of his non-combustible paint on it,' said another gentleman of the party. Penelope pulled her father away toward the first carriage she could reach of a number that had driven up. "'Here, father, get into this.' "'No, no, I couldn't ride,' he answered heavily, and he walked home in silence." He greeted his wife with, "'Well, Persis, our house is gone, and I guess I set it on fire myself.' And while he rummaged among the papers in his desk, still with his coat and hat on, his wife got the facts as she could from Penelope. She did not reproach him. Here was a case in which his self-reproach must be sufficiently sharp without any edge from her. Besides, her mind was full of a terrible thought. "'Oh, Silas,' she faltered, "'they'll think you set it on fire to get the insurance.' Lapham was staring at a paper which he held in his hand. "'I had a builder's risk on it, but it expired last week. It's a dead loss.' "'Oh, thank the merciful Lord!' cried his wife. "'Merciful!' said Lapham. "'Well, it's a queer way of showing it.' He went to bed, and fell into the deep sleep which sometimes follows a great moral shock. It was perhaps rather a torpor than a sleep. End of chapter 24